We are no longer pausing to check in with ourselves. So, you know, who am I? What do I value? Instead, we're being reactive. But you know, most of us do value compassion and understanding and being non-judgmental and looking at things from as many angles as possible. We just need to remind ourselves that that's who we are. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. My guest today is Lisa Swallow. She's the author of two books and the co-founder and executive director of Crossing Party Lines. I'm excited to talk to Lisa today about her ideas with bridging gaps in the political divide, reducing polarization, and increasing our ability to communicate well with one another across party lines. Uh, Lisa has some exciting insights from fields as disparate as couples counseling and neuroscience, and I'm so excited to dive into her work today. I also found out that she's a fellow resident of Portland, Oregon. So for those who are despairing about the direction our city is going in, Lisa is uh, another source of hope that we can improve things here. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. So tell us a bit about Crossing Party Lines. Crossing Party Lines is a national nonprofit. We are 100% volunteer and donation driven. So there's no influence from any political group or anyone else. We have two goals. One is to create community of people who believe that differences are part of what makes America strong. That the fact that we can look at a problem from lots of different directions, come together and through our democratic process, figure out the best solution really gives us an edge. We're a little worried now that we've lost that understanding, though. So, so we really try to build community of people who see it that way and then they can spread the word. But more importantly, we give people an opportunity to meet and talk with people whose views are different than their own. And all our meetings are um, facilitated to make sure that everyone understands what what the skills are and how to talk across differences and comes away having heard some new ideas, but also having had a chance to be heard. I think that this work you're doing is so important and so exciting and so needed in these times. Can you also tell us a bit about the books that you've written? Yeah, I have two books. One is a workbook. So in order to help people learn to talk across differences, we ended up creating several workshops, workshops on how to listen actively and really be curious about what the other person has to say and get them to talk about their views, not from a fact, fact, fact base, but rather here's why my views make sense to me. We have a workshop on how to talk politics, which is how to talk from the eye, how to talk in a way that doesn't get the other person to feel attacked, but rather to really represent where your views come from. 
We have one on your brain on politics, where we teach people to understand how the limbic system plays out in a political conversation. Because basically, everything about politics engages the limbic system and throws us into fight or flight. So we teach people some mindfulness skills and how to work with the limbic system so that they can, instead of coming in as um, someone who's combative in fight or flight mode, instead show up as their best selves and be logical and reasonable and compassionate. So the first book is a workbook that took those three workshops and one other one and put it into workbook form so anyone at home can sit down, work through the activities and learn all those skills for talking across differences. The other is a memoir, which is the story of why a normal human being in Portland, Oregon would start crossing party lines and the journey I had to take in order to get to where I understood what was required and um, how to help people actually do the work themselves. So I feel that we, we learn through story more than we learn through um, reading books or even being told things. So I thought reading my story might help people um, on their path as well. So the workbook is called Yes, You Can Talk Politics, right? And yes. the memoir is No One Was Listening. Yes. Thank you for that. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'll include links to those books in the show notes and on my website. So how did you discover the importance and find the motivation to start doing this work? Well, I have a cousin who lives in Tennessee. And though we grew up together in California, um, his views are the polar opposites of mine. And we found that when we got together, we often started talking politics and it was actually a safe place to get out our frustrations. We could yell at one another without destroying the relationship, but it wasn't really fun. And at one point I started bringing in my understanding of nonviolent communication and setting aside my, my views and instead focusing on him and what was driving him and started asking curious questions. And I noticed that the dialogue changed instantly. So I enlisted his support, and we spent about nine months experimenting with techniques for talking that led to a deeper understanding of one another and more connection. And uh, once I'd figured out the basics, I started the meetup group here in Portland and enlisted the community's help. So I got people from left, right, center, you know, libertarians. We had some anarchists, you name it. We had folks at showing up at the meetings. And together, we continued to refine the process until we got to where we knew what we were doing and we were having some amazing, productive conversations. I love that it started off with your cousin. Was it a close relationship growing up? Yeah, he was my closest cousin. We would see him every summer for chunks of time um, and really close in age. I was quite surprised to learn that someone with what I considered similar California backgrounds could have different views. And that led me to be very curious about why our views are different, which took me down a path of some really fascinating studies in biology and psychology about differences between liberals and conservatives. And that helped me to understand how it is that they could have a different complementary perspective of the world it helped me understand where my views are limited because of the lens that I look through, which tends to be, I personally am progressive, so I tend to be in favor of looking for the underserved and what can we do to elevate them and get their needs met. 
his view is from the more from respect for authority and privacy and things like that. I can understood. I could understand why why he his view was equally good. It, it fit for who he was and what his experiences were, and that allowed me to create the space to be curious about other views, and also to. Um, start to understand that all of the issues we're facing right now, whether they were having to do with race, gender, right now abortion, gun control, they are really complex issues. And seen only through my lens, I'm never going to get a full picture. So that that helped me to embrace the concept of wicked problems and um, the need for diversity of thought and um, become an ambassador for that concept. You talk about the role of the limbic system and those deep moral instincts and powerful emotions that they tap into. It seems like there was a good foundation in your relationship with your cousin because there was that bonding and trust from a lifetime of being family and being close and being peers. And so your general mental map of who he was was a good, safe, trustworthy person and that allowed for that foundation of curiosity. I feel like that's missing in so many interactions. And one of the most tragic things is that there are family relationships that do have many of those strengths where people did grow up together or there was a foundation of love and respect, but things have become so contentious and polarized that people are driving wedges in those relationships. So I love that instead you used the strength of your relationship as a starting point for curiosity so that you could reconcile that cognitive dissonance in a, a way that helped you grow. The cognitive dissonance being, I see this person as a good person, but he believes something that I associate with the bad guys. Well, how do I reconcile that cognitive dissonance? Maybe there's a way that I can retain my image of him as being a good person and better understand a group that I previously thought I had a reason to feel antagonistically towards. I I hope for people to be able to learn from that example and your quest to understand how people's moral instincts manifest in different ways. Like you named that you have this progressive leaning and so your kind of default moral instinct is to look out for the underserved. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Jonathan Haidt. So that that kind of care harm foundation that is a key aspect of liberalism, but you see how it's not that your cousin is coming from an amoral place. It's that his moral instinct favors things like loyalty and sanctity, and you see how that makes sense for who he is and what life experiences he's had. It sounds like you both came from California, but he ended up in Tennessee. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And yeah, we um, we actually have a workshop on moral foundations theory, and it's also in the workbook where we help people recognize that it's not a, it's not that moral-immoral dichotomy, but rather differently moral. And we help people understand that there is intrinsic within morality is tension. I mean, that's why we why it's called morality. That's why we wrestle with it. There's tension between different foundations, but there's tension within the foundations where different people define them differently. And we have found over and over again at Crossing Party Lines that when we choose to bring moral foundations theory in, people start really opening up and understanding how that that person can be loyal, that person can be patriotic, that person can be caring, and yet come up with a completely different understanding of, of the issue. And we, we don't 
fight one another. Rather, we explore the tensions, you know, the different definitions of fairness, the different definitions of caring. Um, and that, that becomes rich and it builds relationships and, mm-hmm. um, and trust, which is so important for this work to, to really continue. I think by doing that, you are deepening and expanding the application of that compassion that is such a moral foundation of liberalism. I'm often struck by the dissonance there where sometimes it's the people who care about that care-harm foundation of morality the most, who are deeply empathetic, who look out for the underdog, those same folks tend to have the biggest blind spots when it comes to empathy, right? Because it's it's that very care that triggers feelings of protectiveness toward perceived victims. And if you're feeling protective, well, then there's a boundary where there's what's within your boundary and what's outside of your boundary. So within your boundary, you're protecting, or at least you feel like you're protecting those you care about. But then that also kind of justifies a a harshness, an exclusion of those you view as a threat to those within your care. And that's where I see that kind of empathic blind spot being. And of course, there's, there's such good reasons for feeling that way because there are threats. There always have been and there always will be threats as long as you're alive. But it's, it's how are we perceiving and reacting to threats um, makes a difference here. And there's been many survival situations where we have to be able to make that judgment call instantaneously. So we have these heuristics, these mental shortcuts where, you know, one little insignia that someone's from the other tribe is enough to go, okay, they're an enemy, not a friend. There's been times that that instinct has saved us. But right now that insignia could be, it could be a single word or look or gesture, anything that implies I'm on the opposite camp. And then that same instinct kicks in but right now, I think it's doing more harm than good. Yeah, I agree. And you know, one of the things we like to do is teach some mindfulness skills. And the mindfulness skills help us recognize where are we right now? Are we in a situation where I do need to have that split second reactive? Or am I here right now in a safe space just talking about ideas? And if it's just ideas, I can be curious about it. But until we are mindful of what's going on in our body, we don't recognize that we're triggered, you know, we're feeling flushed, we're anxious, we're getting louder, repeating ourselves, which are signs that we have already judged that other person as the enemy and we're fighting back. So we learn how to recognize that, do some deep breathing, relax into the experience and become curious and have the courage to lean into something that's uncomfortable. I like the phrase distress tolerance. So It causes distress for us to hear views that are different from our own or to even see MAGA hats or if you're on the other side to see something that says Black Lives Matter. That that causes distress for us and we have to learn to tolerate that. We need to know that that distress is simply us recognizing that there's something that's bumping against an idea or a belief that's different from our own. We can learn to tolerate that and then lean into it, get curious and start finding out that oh, that person actually cares about so many of the things I care about. The other part of that is recognizing that because we all care about one another, we're all, almost all of us are proud to be American, at least in concept, maybe not necessarily about the way we're behaving right now, but most of us love our country and the idea of democracy. 
And yet those ideas are different in one person than another. And when we can dive into those differences and hear how it manifests, how patriotism manifests or compassion or caring manifests in the other person and see, oh, that's, that's also relevant. We need this kind of caring as well as that. We really do start to respect one another and become more comfortable with hearing things from that person that we might not feel comfortable hearing on TV or elsewhere. Before we started recording, you said that you draw from couples counseling. And what you just said reminded me of that, reminded me of how if people are polarized over a contentious issue in a marriage, for instance, sometimes it helps to peel it back away from the details of that particular issue to what's at the heart of the emotions and instincts that are getting triggered here. Like, is it about a need for safety or security? Is it about your love for your child manifesting in different ideas about how to take care of the child? You can always find some common ground or at least some basic human need that we can all relate to, which is one of those concepts from nonviolent communication, like you mentioned. So I'm hearing those parallels there. I also want to mention while it's on my mind that before we started recording, another thing you mentioned is that you want to start having more crossing party lines events in person again. And you said that's where we really form strong connections. And I was wondering about your thoughts on what the pandemic and being online so much of the time has done to these issues that you care about. Oh, the pandemic has been a boon in that it helped us move to a virtual space so people can talk to others from all around the country, um, really different views. But one thing that's happened is meeting spaces are no longer as, as available as they are, so we've been having a hard time finding free meeting spaces. But people also have become a little more comfortable just staying isolated. So we've seen that they'd rather stay online talking across a video which insulates them from a real person than actually stepping into the room with someone who's different. So having those meetings, I think, will start um, bringing us back to that socialization. That I, I really think socialization's atrophy during the pandemic. I see people who are, are you know, less interested in dressing up and going out, less interested in going shopping, and they certainly don't want to go out and meet someone whose views are completely different than their own that have become the enemy. I think I've mentioned... In a previous episode, so for for listeners who have heard this before, thank you for your patience. But right before the pandemic hit was when I read The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And I remember a reference to a couple of studies in that book that stood out because he talks about the relationship between the emotion of disgust and morality, how mm -hmm. things that we find immoral trigger uh, that powerful emotion of disgust and revulsion. And that there's a link between our fear of contamination, which is rooted in an evolutionary history of fighting off pathogens. I mean, it's good to have a fear of contamination because you don't want to expose yourself to salmonella, for instance, right? But that, that fear of contamination to protect our physical body has this link with our fear of psychological contamination, which I think a lot of people who are very morally rigid, rigid at this time are like afraid of being infected with a psychological 
virus, so they won't even go near certain ideas because it strikes them as contaminated. So I remember reading in that book about a couple of studies that demonstrated that even the slightest cue in the background of a social interaction that reminded people of fear of disease, like the cue of visually seeing hand sanitizer or the cue of being asked to wash your hands prior to doing an activity, those cues triggered more morally rigid behavior. And I remember putting two and two together because I read that and then the pandemic hit and the last couple years has been a time where I've seen such moral rigidity. And I wonder, do you, what do you think of that observation that our, our fear of contamination and that physical disgust has kind of increased our moral disgust, our moral fear of contamination, and therefore our moral rigidity and unwillingness to hear each other? I, I think it's spot on. I have been explaining it in terms of um, the level of anxiety we've been feeling. So with the pandemic, our anxiety has gone sky high. We're afraid of our friends, our family members. We're afraid of just about anything you can imagine. So of course, we're also afraid of vaccines and you name it. But the higher our anxiety level is, the, the more our limbic systems are on high alert and the more active it is and more likely it is that the the limbic system will throw us into fight or flight or freeze. I like both these explanations. I think both are true. And I'm really curious. I'd love to see some studies that relate that to one another because I think that, I think they're, they go hand in hand. I wonder how can we deal effectively with that, that fear of contamination that causes us to not only miss opportunities to be curious and learn from each other, but almost kind of clamp down like this. I can't, I can't possibly stand to expose myself to your ideas because something you said or did set off the chain reaction in my mind that labeled you as a bigot, as the bad guy, as the other side. And so, uh, you know, it's almost like it's my moral duty to shut you up and keep you away and and quarantine you so that you can't possibly infect anyone else with your ideas. Like if if people have developed that habit as part of their way of relating to other people, how how do you how do, how do you break them out of that? Well, we develop new habits and we remind them of old habits. So most of those people also consider themselves to be compassionate, non-judgmental, caring. And so we remind them of that. And so one of the things we do at Crossing Party Lines is talk about the danger of labels. And we we try not to label anyone and of assumptions that we're making and get people to step back into that place of, I'm not judgmental. I'm I'm gonna withhold judgment or step back into that place of not labeling. Because when we point out that, okay, so you are someone who doesn't like to be labeled, see danger and label and that aren't you labeling someone right now, they're able to start stepping back and go, oh, wow, yeah, maybe I can do it differently. So wherever possible, we invite people to go back to those healthier behaviors that they've stepped away from out of fear and also to just remind themselves of who they are and what their true values are when it comes to connection and communication. Because I think, I feel as though so often we are no longer 
pausing to check in with ourselves. So, you know, who am I? What do I value? Instead, we're being reactive. But, you know, most of us do value compassion and understanding and being non-judgmental and looking at things from as many angles as possible. We just need to remind ourselves that that's who we are. Part of what I like to do at Crossing Party Lines is just, you talked about hand sanitizers just being one little visual trigger. Well, I like to use triggers around being non-judgmental. I like to to re- just subtle reminders that we're here to listen, that it's a gift to hear someone else's opinions, that we don't judge. And, and those reminders, I think, carry with people. They start to identify themselves as someone who has the capacity to hear someone on the other side and to really try to understand what they're saying. So yeah, new new patterns, new behaviors, or, or just reviving those old ones. Mm-hmm. There again, you're reminding people of a cognitive dissonance in a way that can help them reconcile that cognitive dissonance. So on the one hand, you really identify as a compassionate, non-judgmental person. On the other hand, are you behaving that way right now? And, and if if broached in the right way, that can really help people grow. I often feel like that's part of my work as a therapist is to highlight areas of cognitive dissonance in a way that people can grapple with and grow through. What are some of those cues that you use to trigger feelings of goodwill? We, we have a lot of them. One is, let's say someone is speaking and they share something from the heart. We like to thank them from sharing from the heart. So we will anchor anything someone says that takes us in the direction that we want us to go. We will just say, this is what we're about here at Crossing Party Lines. So before every meeting, we help people learn our, our basic roles. Um, you know, As a listener, your role is to be curious and to try and understand where the other person's coming from, not just the facts that they're sharing, but where they're coming from, why those why they chose those facts, why their views make sense to them. And as a speaker, our goal is to share our views in a way that makes people want to listen by being talking about our personal experiences and our values and, and how we connect those dots. Those are things that no one else can share but, your, but you. So no one else is going to tell. You, you can't on a media watching a show hear why someone's views make sense to them, how their moral moral foundations are at play. So you share those things. So by by helping people understand how to create a brave space where the listener has the responsibility for hearing in a non-judgmental way and the speaker has the responsibility to share their views in the most, I like to say, owning way, in a way that says, these are my views. I'm not trying to push them on you. This is just why it makes sense to them, to me. That's that's the way to make it a brave space where people can come together, make mistakes, confront that cognitive dissonance that's uncomfortable, but it's okay to be uncomfortable in that space. I was picturing in my mind these meetings happening in person and thinking about how when we gather in person in any capacity, there are all these little opportunities to do acts of kindness for each other. Like, for example, when I was a therapist in an office in the before times, and I had clients in person, I would usually start off by offering them water or tea. Um, I would, you know, have some water boiling. I'd have, you know, some tea for myself. The tea selection was there for them. I'd have, um, you know, I set up their side of the room next to the couch with the table where there was always a pitcher of water and some clean cups, tissues, paper and pen in case they wanted to write things down. You know, the act of 
opening the door for someone, uh, offering to take their coat, offering them a seat, all of these little things that make interactions sweeter, that signal to each other that we're safe here. I think we miss those and we don't even realize it. And, and that we're missing out on that, that feeling of how, how good it feels just to be kind to someone in some small little way, as well as to receive that kindness. And that when, when there are folks who are missing out on those opportunities because of isolation, then, you know, you don't have the opportunity to hold the door for someone or offer them some water or tear tissues. And I'm not just talking about therapy, although therapy is, of course, an easy place to do those things. But I think in general, you know, like we we see someone who we could do something kind for. They drop something. We can pick it up. It makes us feel good about ourselves and it makes us feel good about the world that we live in. And I think in the absence of that, we're looking for some kind of way to feel like I've done my service to humanity today. And that can end up looking like online aggressive behavior fighting for for your beliefs and and you're kind of missing out on that other side of things that makes us safe and able to function together. Yeah. When we were meeting in person, we always started with, we'd always have cookies, wine, tea, and beer because, you know, you've got the beer drinkers as well. So we'd always break bread together and people would be bringing their donations We did so many of those things you mentioned, and that's what we lost when we moved to virtual space. So one of the things I do when I am running the meetings is as people step in, I say, welcome, haven't seen you for a long time. And I greet each person individually, and we we take time to tell jokes, uh, talk about our cats, a few things like that to just remind people you are speaking with a human being here. And then when we go into our breakout rooms, we share a little bit about how our days have been going or something to really humanize it. One of the things we've been doing here at Crossing Party Lines is we've launched a community site that's designed for people to connect outside of our meetings, but with people whose views are different than their own. And we're we're just now trying to build that up. But it, the idea is to be a virtual space where you can come and talk about the issues, find out what you can do that's positive and proactive instead of posting on Facebook. But it's, it's a <laughs> challenge. It's a challenge figuring out how people can feel civically engaged in a way that's positive if they're isolated in their homes. I was remembering Daryl Davis, the, mm-hmm. um, for, for those who don't know the story of Daryl Davis, please go listen to the story of Daryl Davis. Maybe someday I'll get him on the podcast. One of my podcast guests, Xavier Bonilla, he interviewed Daryl Davis on his podcast. So I highly recommend people listen to that episode. But for those who don't know, Daryl Davis is a black man who befriended members of the KKK and didn't try to convince anyone of anything. But I think if I recall correctly, something like over 200 members of the KKK renounced their membership and handed Daryl their robes through the process of of Daryl's kind of fearless world bridging. And I remembered when I was listening to his interview with Xavier, him just talking about like he's sitting down with some KKK grandmaster and they're talking about music and movies that they both like. And, and you know, here's this this racist who's had so little interaction with black people and he's having this, these dawning moments of like, this guy likes the same movies that I do. What? You know, it like never occurred to him. So I love that you talk about the importance of breaking bread and these, these humanizing interactions that remind us how much we have in common. Yeah. 
A lot of people ask what's different about crossing party lines compared to some of the other bridging organizations like Braver Angels or I'll, I'll take living room conversations out because they're like us. But we really do focus on the human side of things, give each individual a chance to talk and be themselves and share their fears and concerns and and what they're doing outside of, of this conversation. Because this is about community. We are reconnecting with our fellow Americans, our fellow Portlanders. It's, it's not just about, I want to hear your views so that I can argue with them, or I want to hear your views so that I can feel superior. It's, I want to learn from you. I want to grow with you. I want to work side by side with you to make something happen. And we're, we're really community focused for that reason. How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health, equally important to nutrition and exercise yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preach to my clients but I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking the cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. I'm curious about any memorable stories that come to mind of particular breakthroughs that you've seen doing this kind of work. Yeah, my my first one was, I think we'd only been meeting about seven times. And as I was wrapping up and closing up the meeting, people stood up and I watched and I watched a libertarian, a conservative and a liberal heading off to a bar together because they wanted to keep talking. And that turned into what in when we're meeting in person is called the after party where people continue to build the friendships. And sometimes they continue with the conversation we started, but then it gets into music, it gets into sports, it gets into everything else. So it becomes this wonderful friendship and that grew and grew. So at the end, um, right before the pandemic hit, there would generally be 15 to 20 people at those after parties. So that was a really important thing for us. Another, we had a 
a woman joining us who, she was a very conservative religious person. And she came because she said there's nowhere else in her life where she can get to know progressives and what they're thinking and why it works. And at one point, we were talking about race. And she said, you know, one of the things that I'm aware of is, is I'm afraid that if I become, if I'm, no, if I'm being white, if I'm no longer part of the majority, I'm worried that they're going to treat me the way we treated them. And this openness to say, I'm recognizing that maybe I wasn't perfect and I'm afraid, that built a lot of connection with her. Everyone in the room was astounded and reached out to her and thanked her. And a third one was in a gun control conversation where we had a woman, this is one of the conversations we had more conservatives showing up to than liberals, but we had a woman there who was a victim of domestic gun violence. And at one point, she shared her story. And it was, it was horrifying. She talked about what it felt like to have a gun held to her head and not being able to go anywhere. And at the end, the whole room was quiet. And we were just kind of nervous. What do you do with that much vulnerability and that much intensity? And one gentleman who was a gun owner said, Hope, I need to tell you that I would like to apologize to you from, the, from my heart and from all gun owners, that should never have happened to you. And um, that's that's the sort of thing we don't want to have happen and we want to work towards that. So connecting over real stories and vulnerability, always there's a vulnerability that's required in order to get to that connection. But finding that it's safe to be there, um, those things are just life-changing. That sounds so healing and transformational. You mentioned a few of our hot button issues. I have many listeners in different parts of the world. Like I think about one out of five listeners are in the UK, only 56% last time I checked are in the US. So I know for those listening from other parts of the world that there are certain areas of life in which Americans butt heads that are a little confounding for you because you know you've figured out things like universal health care and gun laws and and they're not so hotly debated but you know for for those of us here in the US they are very contentious subjects so you mentioned things like abortion and gun control i'm not sure if there are any other issues you'd like to put on the table but i'm curious about your thoughts on any one of these issues that's so highly polarizing and and what you've learned from facilitating debates across the lines there one of the things I've learned is people tend to talk against one another, not in terms of I'm, I'm talking, my ideas are, are different from yours, but rather I might be talking on a meta level and someone else is talking down in an experiential level. I might be sharing with you what I think are someone's agendas, whereas someone else is talking about um, actions that need to take place. So, so oftentimes we're having different conversations and not even knowing it. So it's really crucial to slow down and say, what are we talking about? Why, where do we hope to go with this conversation? And what angle do you tend to look at this issue from? Do you look at it from that systemic issue, from, from motivation or agendas, from personal experience? And let's get on the same page first if we're gonna have a productive conversation. Personally, now this is stepping outside of my facilitator and executive director hat, being a human being who's been listening to hundreds of these conversations. 
I've come to believe that what's most important is the conversation, not the answer. When it comes to, say, abortion, we will never know at what point life begins. That is something that science has never been able to figure out. And we, you know, the whole concept of a soul, if we believe there's a soul, we don't know at what point the soul inhabits a, a fetus or a, an unborn child, whatever you want to say about it. We're, because we will never have an answer, we have, to mor- we have to wrestle morally with this issue of abortion and where do we stand. And we have to look at it from as many angles as possible and to be as compassionate as possible for every person involved in it. So it's the conversation, it's the wrestling with the issue that I think is is vital for us to be thoughtful, intelligent voters. And so continuing the conversation, that's just crucial for us. And we may never have an answer. We may never get to where the government can dictate something about abortion that everyone's going to agree with. And the same is true for um, anything related to guns and several other things. We may never have an answer that fits everyone, but we can continue to always talk and explore and um, find ways to get in on, on the solutions that will gradually reduce the, the problems. I agree that the conversation itself is so important and part of how we progress and learn and discover new ways of looking and problem solving and and I think some people are quick to give up, like, well, we'll never reach a solution, so what's the point? But I'm recalling this conversation I listened to recently. It was an episode of Dark Horse Podcast where Brett Weinstein was interviewing Constantine Kissin um, on a trip to the UK in Constantine's studio. And it was a long conversation. They covered a lot of topics, but there was this point where they were butting heads. I, I don't mean to misquote. I'm I'm afraid of misrepresenting what they were saying, but my best approximation of it is that Brett was trying to make the point that he thinks that Constantine and anyone else really has a moral obligation to speak out about some of the ugly, dark things that have happened with coercion around COVID and the concealing of vaccine adverse effects and Brett's point seemed to be like, you don't have to be an expert in this to know enough to know that there's something wrong with how the powers that be are handling this. And as a public figure, you should speak up about it. That was Brett's point in a nutshell. And Constantine's point in a nutshell was, I don't know enough about this to take a stance. And I think it's irresponsible to say something that I am not qualified to speak on. And when he was making that point, I was remembering something I heard him say several months ago when the war broke out between Russia and the Ukraine. And that's something that he is really qualified to speak on. I believe he is Ukrainian or Russian. I might be getting this confused. Please pardon me. But Constantine has expert level knowledge to speak on that issue. And I remember listening to him speak on it at the time and feeling impressed and grateful. And he shared around that time that seeing so many people comment so loudly on the Russia-Ukraine situation without having the level of knowledge that he had really made him pause and think about 
has he been doing that with anything where he's not as much of an expert? And should he maybe be more cautious about what he expresses and how certainly he expresses it? So I remembered Konstantin saying that in the past based on his experiences with the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which really made sense. And, you know, of course, a part of me was thinking, come on, Brett, drop it. Like, Konstantin said no, and he was being a little hot-headed. But I appreciated the dialectic because they both had a really valid point. And even if they weren't going to see eye to eye on this one issue, I think it was still important that both perspectives be represented more broadly. You know, Brett has a point, even if you take out what this particular conflict is about, do we have a moral obligation to speak out if we have enough information to know that something's wrong? Well, that's an important point of view to bring into any conversation. Do we also have a moral obligation to be really cautious about the level of expertise we profess on something we haven't fully done our research on? Yeah, that's a point too. Both perspectives needed to be represented. Yeah, and at Crossing Party Lines, we find that there's some ways to get around that. People do feel that need to share what they know, especially when it alarms them. What we see on the media, whether it's social media or um, something on MSNBC or Fox News, is people will share what they know as if it's the facts, all the facts and only the facts, which is misleading. So at Crossing Party Lines, we encourage people to say, well, from what I've been reading, or what worries me the most, or from my perspective, it really seems like, and as long as you make a, make a point of coaching it or couching it that way, you're able to get people to know that I'm worried about this. So with the vaccine, I've heard these things that make me feel that there may be some adverse effects that we're not aware of. These are the things I've been hearing, and I'm quite concerned. We are no longer saying I have all the answers. We're saying this is information I want to share because it's good for us. So that, to me, is that middle ground where you're allowed to speak out when you feel morally driven to do so, and you can do it in a way that is not misleading people about how much of an expert you might be. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of how I handled a YouTube comment recently. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with my work on gender, but I'm very critical of gender issues and protective of especially the safeguarding of children um, when it comes to medicalization. And someone commented on my interview with Helen Joyce that she, she was saying, you guys are making good points about how we should be free to question things. And don't you think we should also be free to question homosexuality and whether, you know, are you sure homosexuality can't be treated? Just because the tactics that people used to try to treat psychological illnesses in the past were abusive doesn't mean that we didn't keep trying to treat psychological illnesses and finding other ways. Are you sure that just because homosexuality has only been treated through these abusive conversion therapy measures doesn't mean it can't be treated. Are you sure there's no link between homosexuality and trauma or mental illness? She was saying these things. And the way that I handled that was, I hear that you're concerned about freedom of speech and you don't like it when there are things that we're just not allowed to question. That said, here are the major differences I see between the gender issue and the sexuality issue. I think that these kind of comments can be hurtful to gay people, including ones who aren't particularly fragile. And, you know, I understand the need to question things, but 
at the same time, there's a difference between questioning something that's asking all of society to change and that's proposing something really radical versus questioning people who just want to live their lives in peace and where there's no actual, you know, negative consequences to that. But one of the main points that I made that I wanted to bring up here and now was, you know, I said, I'm not an expert in biology, anthropology, or sociology, right? And so I'd welcome one of those experts on the show if they have some insights about homosexuality that I don't have. But based on everything I do know, mostly from psychology, a little bit of evolutionary biology, a little bit of anthropology, you know, based on everything I know, yes, I do believe homosexuality is innate. And while I could see a case for it being associated with trauma, that would be completely anecdotal. I would be thinking to my own personal experiences as a therapist thinking, okay, how many of my gay clients have trauma? And that would be very skewed because most of my clients have trauma, gay or straight. And, you know, until I have more information, I'm just going to comment within what I know and where I'm coming from. And for me, that was a comfortable response to give because I felt like I was speaking within my scope of practice and also sharing, you know, a little bit that felt more factual and a little bit that felt more like this is my personal expression of morality and my feelings on the matter. And I think in today's climate, that person making those kind of comments would be more likely to just be met with being called homophobic, being called a bigot, and end of discussion. But what is that going to do for her except make her feel more frustrated about the lack of freedom of speech and open debate in our society? And I can say, hey, I hear you. Freedom of speech, open debate. Also, here's where I disagree. And then she feels heard, at least. Which I think is beautiful because one of the things we forget, or many people don't understand, um, being heard and seen is a basic human need. We as humans need to be seen for who we are. And when we aren't, we tend to have some pretty bizarre behavior. It's really not very good for us. Um, and we've been losing that right now. We're, we're not seeing one another. We are not taking time to really hear one another. So um, I think that is part of the big problem we're having with polarization. It's it's not just on the matter of politics. It's in, in life in general, when we're represented by Facebook or Instagram or, or TikTok, we have forgotten to stop and really see one another to listen to one another. So I'm, I'm impressed by your example. It was a great way for meeting her, helping her feel seen and heard, and also um, modeling an open mind and a curious and, and open heart. So I think, good job. And I want to say that it's easier for me to do that because of where I'm at in life, the tools that I have, and the fact that I'm not gay. I think, you know, if I were gay then that comment would be more likely to feel like a threat to me. And mm -hmm. so I take personal responsibility for managing my distress tolerance, right? For noticing, do I have the capacity to remain logical and emotionally stable and engage in this conversation? And if not, if something's too upsetting or too close to home, or if I'm not in the right state of mind, then I don't have to engage. I think exactly. you, you see on the internet a lot of behavior around, at least I used to see it when I was involved in certain circles on Facebook, this kind of narrative that you're asking oppressed people to do emotional labor. 
by asking them to engage in these conversations. But it's like we all have the freedom and I think we have the responsibility to know when to step away and to remember that it's optional to engage in this conversation. I would completely understand if, you know, if let's say a podcast host who was similar to me but who was gay received a comment like that on their channel, if they said, you know what, I don't have it in me to deal with this. And if they if they needed to not approve the comment, I would understand that too. Yeah, that's really important for us to recognize that we have boundaries around what we talk about and with whom. We can't talk across differences with everyone. And we can't talk across differences on every subject. We're going to have subjects where we know, yeah, I'm just not able to hear the other side right now and I'll do the work so I can get that way. Um, we ran into that with moderating. People wanted a topic on abortion. And I said, I can't do that right now. I'm just not ready. And we had a different moderator that I trained who ran a first meeting on abortion. And I participated and I worked hard and I got to where now I can have a conversation about abortion. I can have the conversation. I can facilitate it. But I wasn't ready at the outset. And that's okay. We have our limitations. We also, I think... And this is something that I'm starting to teach at Crossing Party Lines is we need to take a moment to ask why we want to talk to another person and, and each each individual. So someone said, well, I need to tell I need to have a conversation with my aunt Sue about race. And I said, why? You know, the knee jerk is we need to make sure everyone can talk about race and that we explore these ideas. But right now, why do you need to talk to Aunt Sue? Does, is she going to learn anything from it? Are you ready? Um, and what what's the value in it at, at this moment? And sometimes there's not enough value for the risk that it takes. And I mean a risk to a relationship. These hard conversations can create wedges between us and other people if we don't know how to handle them and we're not ready for them. So I encourage people to just kind of pull back and say, this is a conversation that's important and I'd like to have at some point. Uh, generally, we're not ready for a conversation if we're not ready to hear what the other person says. You know, if, yeah. if it makes me uncomfortable to hear what Aunt Sue is going to say, then I'm not ready to have that conversation mm -hmm. and I need to figure out how to get there. Right. Can you see yourself learning something from it too? It's Exactly. I've, I've asked people that because I have, I, I've tended to have clients who are very liberal and feel passionately about those views and oftentimes want to convince someone in their family of something. And, you know, I'll often kind of pose the question when, when someone feels a need to convince someone of something else, like when was the last time someone else persuaded you to look at something differently? I, I don't think those moments come very often for many people. And if they do come there, there's a certain kind of set of conditions that has to be met to make that more likely to occur. And so I think it's important to have realistic expectations. Think about what you know about your own willingness to change and how that change comes for you and what conversations are persuasive. You mentioned earlier, I wanted to make sure to come back to this, that when we're not seen and heard, we have some pretty bizarre behavior. And that made me think of the fundamental attribution error. You know, you say bizarre behavior when we're not being seen and heard, and that shows your insight that behavior isn't necessarily an indicator of a person's character, that it it might be an indicator that there's this frustration manifesting over not feeling seen and heard. And so for those who aren't familiar with the fundamental attribution error, it's 
It's a name for one of our many cognitive distortions as human beings that we're vulnerable to, the way our mind twists things, which is that we view our own behavior in light of our inner experience of what's going on that compelled us to act that way in a particular moment. It was situational. It had something to do with the other person or it had something to do with how your body was feeling on that day. You were tired or hungry and and you hope to be seen the same way, but typically we interpret other people's behavior not as indicative of something that's happening in that particular moment um, or of some unmet need, but as, as indicative of their character. And that's called the fundamental attribution error. So I'm curious if that's kind of a, a part of your work in, in depolarizing people too, helping them see others' behavior in context rather than as an indication of their character. Yeah. I mean, that's why we have the Brain on Politics workshop. And in that, we help people see that first, we help us, each of us, look at how we feel and behave when we're in fight or flight mode. What does it look like? What does it feel like? And we notice things like we all do it differently. So it's not like you can say these are the cues, but there are some pretty standard things like wiggling, being flushed, flushed face or, or feeling hot, tense, talking louder talking more rapidly, saying the same thing over and over again. There's just a lot of cues. So we get to understand how we behave in fight or flight and start recognizing we can see those cues in other people and say, oh, they're triggered. Oh, let's let's recognize that's what's going on, not that they're showing up as their best selves and, and being who they are. Um, the other thing is, as we notice that we're getting triggered, one of the things I teach people is, is to wonder. So I wonder. And at the beginning, we start wondering, well, I wonder why I reacted to that this way. But then as we get a little bit better at it, we can say, I wonder why that person said that particular thing. I wonder what that word means to them. I wonder what experiences they have that have led them to to have that response that they just shared with me. So um, using mindfulness and wondering to create curiosity helps us to move beyond that attribution error um, and instead say, this is a human being who's triggered, who's got feelings, who's got experiences, who maybe didn't get enough sleep. We try to get people to learn to do that. Mm. That reminds me that I often tell couples, you know, going back to couples therapy, that defense is the first offense. And that's one of the skills that I work on with my couples is noticing earlier and earlier in the process as you develop when it is that your defensiveness is getting triggered because that's the moment that you depart from curiosity. And if if you can bring back that curiosity, then you're staying in, you know, to use a little bit of limbic system language, you're staying in that safe and social zone where your emotions are regulated enough to be open to new information. Whereas when you feel defensive and you gave some some visible signs as well as some internal signs, right? Like your heart beating faster, finding yourself repeating yourself, getting louder, then that's a sign that you've already left that zone of really being receptive to new information, which doesn't have to say anything bad about you. Maybe it's an indicator of how you need to take care of yourself in that moment. Yeah, definitely. I like to tell people that everything we do at Crossing Party Lines is designed to keep you in that safe and comfortable and social space. 
so that you don't start out the conversation already triggered. A lot of people feel triggered the minute they step into a conversation, the minute they start thinking about talking to their political other, they get triggered. And so there is absolutely no part of the conversation that is is one in which people can learn from one another and care about one another. So learning that we can manage the situation as well as ourselves often helps us. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. Earlier, you said that um, you had declined to facilitate dialogues on abortion because you didn't feel like you were up for the task until something shifted and you did. So I was curious about how you knew that for yourself, how you knew that you weren't ready, how that you knew that you were ready, and what you found helpful in those conversations. Uh, The way I knew I was not ready is um, a couple of things. One is um, just what it feels like in my gut when I start stepping into that conversation. I notice I tend to get really tight in the stomach and and my fists get tight. And I just felt that I um, I was triggered just thinking about having to run that conversation. So noticing it in myself, that gives me a lot of information that I can run with. The other thing was um, imagining, take a moment to imagining, imagine hearing other views and asking myself, which of those would I be able to step into and ask curious questions about? I couldn't think of many at first with, with the abortion issue. So I felt I was ready when I had spoken to enough people who had different views than I did and had been able to lean into it and learn from them and have compassion for their fears and their feelings. I think people who have different views than I do are worried about how this impacts different people. You know, one might worry about the unborn child, another might worry about the mother. They are worried about different things. Someone is worried about the the letter of the law. How are we going to enforce this? Others are worried about how are we going to support freedom for as many people as possible. So they have different fears and concerns. So as I understood all of the different, or as many angles as I was able to, um, to look at this issue from, the more I was able to say, yes, I can meet you where you are. I can talk to you. I can hear from you. And I can share my views without trying to force them on you, but create this exchange where we can both grow from one another. So I think that's, that's so tough when it comes to abortion. I know this isn't an objective sampling by any means, but several weeks ago when things on abortion were really hot on Twitter, actually it might've been before Roe v. Wade was overturned, but I pulled my Twitter followers or whoever would respond Um, have your views on abortion ever changed? And for most people, it was either, no, I've always been pro-choice or no, I've always been pro-life. I think it was about 10% of people each had changed at some point in their life. And I think the way that people talk about abortion, I notice each side being really stubborn in phrasing things in their own language. Like, so 
pro-choice people will describe pro-life people as anti-choice, right? And pro-life people will describe pro-choice people as like pro-murder. I mean, everyone puts it in terms of their own view. For pro-choice people, obviously, it's about women. For pro-life people, obviously, it's about babies. And as you said, there nobody can say exactly objectively when life begins. And, you know, pro-choice people don't think of them as babies. They think of them as embryos or fetuses, right? And I just notice each side really being unwilling to budge when it comes to even framing the issue in terms of how the other sees it. Will pro-life people talk about women's issues and and how pro-choice people feel that women are affected by this? You know, will pro-choice people give any credence to the value around the the sanctity of the unborn child and its its right to life? I think people are so scared to let go of their own side even a little bit, but it's those conversations that humanize us for one another. I'm personally pro-choice, but if I had to pick one hill to die on, it would not be that hill. And I am planning a future episode with a fellow therapist who's pro-life, and I'm really looking forward to having that conversation just to model a way of talking about these things where we can bring our therapeutic skills to the table instead of just butting heads. Yeah, I actually have a pretty long section in my memoir about abortion, about the issue and how I feel and and the fact that, you know, I am not really a binary person. I don't, you know, and we can we can put that pretty much anywhere. I'm not I just don't feel that binaries are very useful for us that, you know, it's this or that. Um so often we have these false dichotomies and and it's it's just life is much more complex than binary. And so I like to say that I am pro-life and pro-choice, and um, and here's how here's what it means, and I'll explain what it means. And and by by taking the time to say this is these are the things I've wrestled with, these are the solutions I've come up with for myself, that helps other people step in and start saying, well, yeah, you know, I do feel that way. So modeling the more complex position that many of us truly have, if we're allowed to take time to think about where do we really stand, sharing that with others encourages them to then open up to have something that's less confrontational. And we did have a a conversation about abortion just a few weeks ago and got into some of that richness. Another thing that we do is we are very aware at Crossing Party Lines that different groups of people politically use language very differently. So you might use the same word and mean different things. One of the examples I like to use is corporation. On the left, we think of multinational corporations. And on the right, they tend to think of LLC, mom and pop, five employee corporations. So and if we, if we talk about corporations, we don't have a conversation. But if we say, I'm talking about this kind of corporation, if we get very specific in our language, we're able to connect with one another. So our moderators are trained to say, you know, you're starting to use some jargon here that makes more sense to one side than the other. Can you be more specific when you talk about, when you talk about abortion? Are you talking about first trimester, second trimester, third trimester? You know, when you're talking about how they're going to, in a state, how they're going to limit abortion, are you talking about how the, the state is doing it? Are you talking about 
the new Texas ruling where they want to bring people in to, to have civil suits instead of legal suits. You know, what, what specifically are you talking about? And the minute we get down to specifics, the conversation opens up to be something that different views have a place and we can learn from one another. Mm-hmm. Specificity and nuance are important. I think we live in a culture where everything happens so quickly. Everything happens at the touch of a button that we don't slow down to take in all that nuance. We also tend to pride ourselves in the ability to create memes and sound bites and to digest our idea into something that can fit on a single Twitter post, which means we're being rewarded for going away from nuance and specificity. So there's got to be places in our life where we're, we're rewarded for becoming more specific and more nuanced and Crossing Party Lines is one of those places. So I want to ask you, Lisa, you seem, I don't know if it would be fair to say optimistic, but you certainly don't seem cynical. So I'm curious about how you maintain your optimism and that energy to keep moving forward, trying to help dialogues progress. It's always the human component that keeps me going. So when I spend too much time not participating in the meetings, not working with the volunteers, um, ruminating in my head, watching TV, (laughs) um, going on Facebook, I can get pretty discouraged and start to wonder what's the point here? There's there's so much going against us. And, And yet I know this isn't really important. But the minute I step into a meeting with people who've been coming for months or years who have really different views than I do. And I see them in my, I I just get excited. I'm I'm happy. I'm feeling loved. I'm feeling welcome. I'm feeling connected. At that point, I know that um, we can get back to a place where we're less polarized, but it's going to be happening one person at a time. It's it's not something that's going to be legislated. It's not going to be something that happens overnight. We just need to have more people learning to do it, enjoying doing it, being ambassadors for talking across differences, being comfortable having friends that are different and having different views. One of the things you mentioned earlier is how politics can drive a wedge between married couples or friends. And um, I think we need to start getting more avenues of support for people whose relationships have been fractured or ruined due to the political differences and help people learn ways to grow beyond it. That's one of the things I've been kind of working on in my time off was coming up with ideas to work with people and, you know, would generally be couples, not not necessarily married couples, but parent-child or sister-brother, help them learn to come together over their differences and It's a process very much like couples counseling, where there is a lot of work to be done on both sides because both sides have, in one way or another, bought into the, you're my enemy now. But I think there's some really rich opportunity for us to learn to help people heal that divide at a personal level, continue to get more and more people involved in in bridging work and talking across differences. I think that's so important, much needed, and um, I have a growing audience of people who are future therapists who are you know, currently in grad school or 
interning. And I think this is one of the areas for them to pay attention to, right? This is a potential specialty (laughs) that you might go into for your career because we're going to need a lot of it. Yeah, I think we will. And it's not just here in the States. We've got people interested in starting crossing party lines in Brazil. Um, folks have talked to me about it in Spain and England. Um, it's, it's a worldwide issue right now. Wow. That's great. So that kind of brings us to our wrapping up next steps. How can people find you unless there's anything else, any words of wisdom that I forgot to mine your brain for? Oh goodness. I think we've talked about most of the key points that I, I like to share about. Yeah, I think we're good. Okay. So you said that Crossing Party Lines is expanding. You're currently in nine out of 50 states, but you'd like to um, have groups in every state. So tell people about the direction that you're heading with these projects and how people can get involved. I think the best way to get involved is to come to crossingpartylines.com. We've got a number of contact forms and just reach out and say, this is, I heard about this. I'd like to help do it. For... Starting new chapters, we need people to share with us where they would like to have a new chapter and what resources are available that they know of already. We've got a lot of people saying, oh, we need to have this in, say, Miami, but we need someone on the ground in Miami who can help us find the influencers, find the meeting locations, um, um, make it happen. We can't do that on a national level. So we need people who are local, who want it to happen and are willing to invest a little bit of time in that. But yeah, just let us know. And if, if, if you've got some time and energy and you want it to happen, we will create a chapter in that area. That's great. So this is a real opportunity, not only for involvement, but for leadership for people who feel drawn to this kind of work. Definitely. We are currently expanding our leadership organization right now. So we've got we're, we're looking into getting a new deputy executive director, but we've got several other roles for people who want to get involved, either at the local or the national level. Great. And uh, where are you and CPL located on social media? We are at Cross Party Lines, I think, on Facebook, and it's at Crossing Party Lines on Twitter and um, Instagram. Okay. And I will check that for you and let I, you know. Sounds good. I hope people give you a follow. I will add your books to um, your books and links to the show notes, your books to the website. For those who are just hearing this for the first time, I now have books for sale on my website. So if you go to sometherapist.com slash bookshop, um, there's a section right there at the top uh, featuring the books of um, authors who have been on the show and then other top- topics of interest, including the book I mentioned today, um, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt is also in that bookshop. So you can check that out. Um, Lisa, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure interviewing you today. Thank you. It's been great to be here. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. 
If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.